Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Hey there, there, history history fans, fans. and welcome to another episode of the The History History Explains It All podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're having trouble today, y'all. A little bit. Come explore with us as we explore things big and small. Strange and weird. Unusual. And spooky. What? Spooky? What's that? I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And today's episode is on the Geiger Codex. Oh, yeah. Also known as the Devil's Bible. Yes. But before we get into that, we're going to learn something in our weird history today. Yay! So, Lord, yes. If I were to say to you, unicorns, medieval times, and Vikings. Interesting combo, right? Yeah. Anything pop in your head? Um, Scotland? Not really. I live in Scotland. Why? Did you know that there was a somewhat booming trade in unicorn horns in how, medieval times? How do you trade in unicorn horns when unicorns do not exist? Or do they? They're mythical. Are they? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Mm. Well, yes, you'd be correct. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So how do you train a unicorn horn? Well, that would be a question for the Vikings. Although we're going to go back just prior to the medieval times and a little bit of history into unicorns themselves within uh, different texts throughout history. So the word unicorn itself first appears in a book called Indica by Cessius in the 5th century BC, who was a Greek scholar of natural history. And his account was a unicorn that was fleet-footed, a wild ass from India, and sorry, by that we mean a donkey, who had a single horn. 
And during the medieval times, when you have a lot of Greek and Latin texts being revered, obviously that was a big thing. Oh, there's a single horned creature out there. Although it was probably more of a lost in translation sort of thing. India has no legends of unicorns, but they do have bulls that usually if you, if it stands in profile, the horns kind of look like it's a single piece. So if you're looking at it from the side, it looks like one rather than looking at it head on. Although you don't want to be looking head on at a bull. (laughs) That's also not good. (laughs) Stare the bull down. (laughs) It's a brilliant idea you've ever had. Sure. No, no, no. So you go, you think, well, you go from a bull to a horse. Eh, eh, maybe. All right. So beginning in the Middle Ages is when we start to see the unicorned horse figure as we know it today. And it was proclaimed that this unicorn in medieval fantasy, essentially, uh, could only be killed by hunters if it was first lured in and then tamed by a virgin. You see a lot of different depictions, and we can we'll have a link to a picture uh, of various paintings where it's called the Virgin and the Unicorn, and it's just a fair maiden, usually white skinned, blonde hair, that is hugging, petting, or sitting near a unicorn of some kind. Shocking. Uh huh. And then there's various tapestries throughout Europe that actually have these maidens and unicorns on them. So it was definitely a very big thing. Uh, unicorns dipping their horns into water. It, there was uh, so many... Depictions? Not just depictions. Um, you know, just like with a philosopher's stone. Uh, or the source, and just, sources no, no, and everything else? No, no, no. As I say, like with a philosopher's stone or the sorcerer's stone, it, it could grant eternal life, kind of like the fountain of youth. Oh. Or it could help ail things. What was referred to as unicorn horns or the alicorn horn in some places was said to give the person who owns it magical powers. It was said to prevent poison of people from being poisoned. So there was a lot of, if you actually, and it was incredibly expensive to have a unicorn horn. So only the incredibly rich could actually have it uh but it's said that it could cure all manners of diseases depression rabies the plague uh it could actually cure the dead and bring them back to life it's actually rumored that martin luther himself called for powdered unicorn horn and when he was on his deathbed in 1546 in fact elizabeth the the first even she had i believe she had two actually and one of which was given to her uh, they were both given to her as a gift but one of which was decorated in jewels as well and it was said to have cost at the time ten thousand pounds that's a lot of money in the in the mid 1500s which in of itself at that time was the price of a castle yeah that's a lot of money yeah that's that's definitely a lot a lot of money and where this all kind of ends up coming from are the Vikings. So the story goes is that you had Eric the Red found his, uh, he had this sort of settlement that he created in Greenland 
after he was run out of Iceland, I believe it was, uh, for actually for, for murder. And so he found this settlement and told people, oh, it's Greenland. That's how Greenland got its name. It was a whole thing. It's like, it's green. It's pretty. And it's not. It's really cold. It's covered in snow. Greenland is more like Iceland and Iceland is more like Greenland. Exactly. <laughs> like the name should have been flipped. Well, that's really the whole purpose. It was all a PR kind of campaign. Yeah. And this was back in the 900s. And there's a certain type of animal that's actually known as the sea unicorn because it technically has one horn, even though it's actually not a horn, it's a tooth. And it's only found in the frigid cold waters of the Arctic Circle. And that would be the narwhal. And unlike most other horns that we see, we'll see other, like a, like a rhino's horn, which was also at one point considered to be a unicorn because it's got the one nose horn. But if you look at that or you look at the horns of a bull or they're like tree rings where each there's different striations for different ages. A narwhal tooth is actually uh, it's very rarely seen on the females, but it's mainly seen on males. And it's the left tooth, which for some reason protrudes through the jaw to upper jawbone and out. And it can be as long as anywhere between nine to sometimes up to 15 feet. I'll have a picture. It's really cool. But wow. the narwhal horn is actually curled and twisted, spiraled, if you will, like we have depictions of unicorn horns. And because unicorns became a symbol of purity and Christendom, when the, uh, the Vikings or the Norsemen, even just in general, Vikings were only if you were actually raiding. But the, there was a, a, the Enuit tribe of that area would normally kill the narwhals because they're actually a really good source of vitamin C in terms of the their 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 fat and blubber is actually because there's not a lot of growth tree growth not a lot of fruit and obviously you don't want to die of scurvy <laughs> right well i mean so, it took yeah, how long for people at sea to figure out that vitamin c keeps scurvy away not until the georgian army in 1795 so that's quite a long time and by that time so many people had died of scurvy so I and that was mostly just stuff. using citrus juice yeah so the blubber from blue whales and from narwhals actually contain a quite a bit of vitamin C. Interesting. So that you don't actually get scurvy from being in places that are incredibly uh, sparse, like Greenland and Iceland and the Arctic Circle. And in fact, it's actually said that narwhals actually, their blubber is even more nutritious than belugas. But they're also incredibly difficult whales to track. Uh, I'll have a couple links to some marine biologists uh, websites that I actually found. It's really interesting if anyone's actually interested in that. And the reason they're actually called narwhal is from the term. It's an old Norse term that actually means corpse whale because narwhals are actually spotted. So it reminded them of the spotting on a dead body. Oh, okay. Just, just throw that part out. I thought that was very interesting and weird. It is weird. <laughs> Uh-huh. So they would, the, the, the Vikings would then sell these narwhal tusks, really, or tooth, really, actually, to Europeans that would, they would encounter while they were on raids, typically, and would promote it as being a unicorn horn because they knew unicorns 
Europe was fairly Christian at this point. And so they're like, oh, this is made out of unicorns. You could use it for all these different purposes. And they would make a lot of money off of that because it was a very prized possession because you couldn't find it anywhere else. And for a very, very long time, you couldn't come across one unless you knew where they were and you didn't really know where they were because the Vikings, while they were raised, they were like, oh, no, we, we, we have them up where we are but we're not telling you where we're coming from. So it wasn't until about 1638. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about s- close around 600 years that this was going on, maybe even 700 years that this went on off and on. Then Danish physician and zoologist Ole Worm actually was up in the Arctic Circle area and mm-hmm. came across narwhals and said, oh, this is where it comes from. Yeah, you guys, the unicorn horns, they're not really unicorn horns. <laughs> they're whale tusks, whale, whale teeth. <laughs> Particularly narwhal whale teeth. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, even up to, I mean, that was 1638. Even up to 1746, British doctors were still prescribing what they called alicorn horns as miracle cures. That's dumb. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the cures and medical stuff throughout the Middle Ages is absolutely fascinating. It's the and then, weirdest stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have, I remember I said Queen Elizabeth had one and bought one for 10,000 pounds, which back then was 10,000 pounds. Yeah. What, what's that in today's money? Uh, around four to five million dollars. I'm sorry, four to five million pounds, not million dollars. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And so we also have Ivan the Terrible actually had a staff made of alicorn. No, again, referring to narwhal teeth. And then the hilt of the sword for Charles the Bolt, Duke of Burgundy. uh, Burgundy, Actually, his hilt was made out of narwhal tusk, likely. And the Habsburg's crown's jewel scepter was supposed to be made out of unicorn. And Martin Frobisher, which we've mentioned previously, I think I mentioned him very briefly in our John D. episode. He was a uh, an explorer during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, mm. and he actually gifted her the horn of a sea unicorn, is what he called it. And then Sir Humphrey Gilbert was the one who had another one, a gilded one, that with all the jewels that Elizabeth had bought from him for the ten thousand pounds. And it was so rare to have one; most of the, the heads of the royal houses the kings the queens kept them with their crown jewels even in 1533 pope clement the seventh presented king francis the first of france with a horn mounted in solid gold jesus uh-huh and then i'll actually have a picture to this one this one's really cool and actually it is true but it it's not true that it's unicorn but christian the fifth of denmark is said to have sat on a throne made of unicorn horns, which was used in the coronation ceremonies, which I have, I have a picture of it, but it actually is. There's certain parts of the chair, mostly the legs of the chair. If you look at them, they are spiraled like a narwhal tooth. And those are the pieces made of narwhal, Nice, but not actually unicorn. (laughs) But eventually narwhals were put on the endangered species list. They're still doing much better today, but the trade of narwhal tusks, uh, teeth, because it, it is ivory. So it's kind of like the elephant trade mm-hmm. was completely 
in, in a variety of places. It was, you know, you cannot hunt narwhal because they're endangered. You cannot trade in their tusks. You can't do a whole lots of stuff with it. And in fact, even the Inuit tribes of those areas mm-hmm. are restricted by how many that they can hunt during their hunting seasons too. I mean, that makes sense. We, we, we've done that to the, the up in North too, up by the upper Arctic of Alaska mm-hmm. too. It's very limited on the amount of seals and some of them that you can hunt and trade nowadays too for the Inuit tribes up there. Right. As far as I know. It would make sense to a certain degree, mostly because those the people that are native to those areas are more of they're much more resourceful in terms of how they use it. It's not it's kind of like down here in in North well at least in the Americas where we had the buffalo. The native tribes would kill the buffalo and use pretty much every possible piece for a variety of different resources, food. Mm -hmm hide decorations jewelry a variety of different things and then you had people migrating west and going there's a whole herd of buffalo we're just going to kill it for fun and leave it to rot maybe just take its tongue out and leave the rest of it which i'm thinking you're just killing this massive buffalo and you're not taking the meat the meat's the meat is delicious (laughs) there's so much meat there you're just wasting it that's just stupid yeah, well, we're not exactly the brightest thing on the planet. So, <laughs> also, just to put into perspective, I looked up how many, how much four million pounds is converted into U.S. dollars. It's five million two hundred ninety-nine thousand two hundred dollars, and that's four million pounds. That's a lot. Yeah. 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 And then to give you an idea, today, uh, back in two thousand seven. The tusks, tusks now are, there was an auction in Beverly Hills in 2007 that auctioned a narwhal tusk. Oh, dang. Okay. And, and it, it was bought for about $1,700. That's really cheap in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, the one that Elizabeth bought was like diamond encrusted. It, it was encrusted. Yeah. Else. It wasn't, it, yeah. It's kind of like the one that was given to the king of France by the Pope that was mounted in gold, you know, and that is the story of the Viking unicorn trades. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, you know, nope, nope. Never heard of that. Didn't know that. And at the same time, I'm not surprised that there was a version of a unicorn trade because if we think about it in medieval lore, as we were talking, but also the uh, Scottish animal, which one? Of Scotland, the symbol of Scotland is a unicorn. Oh. Yeah, you didn't know that? Yeah. If you look at the United Kingdom's crest today, there's a lion on one side and a unicorn on the other to symbolize the unity of England because the the England's symbol was the lion and then Scotland's is the unicorn when King James VI of Scotland became James I of England as well. Hmm. It's an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't, Didn't know that. It, I think it's really neat. But anything Scotland is neat. That, that that's true too. <laughs> <laughs> so on to the Devil's Bible. From one trade to another book. I don't know <laughs> Where are you going? My se- my segues are bad today. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Oh my goodness. So from one fantasy to another fantasy. 
from one myth to another myth. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so the Geica Codex, it's not actually a myth, by the way. It actually exists. It has two other names, the Devil's Bible or Codex mm-hmm. Gigas, which is just Geiga Codex flipped. It's um, Latin for large book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a large book. <laughs> it is. That's an understatement. <laughs> I mean, it is the largest medieval manu- manuscript of its time, and it's from the 1200s in Bohemia, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it is believed to have been written between 1204 and 1230, mm-hmm. and it is nearly – oh, no, it is, it's three inches – three inches. My goodness. More yeah. coffee today. Three feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> basically it's half my size and i'm short this is a giant book half your size you're not six feet i'm five foot two it's only two feet shorter than i am it's two-thirds as big as you are same difference okay oh my god miss specific right here anyway it's three feet tall and 20 inches wide and nearly nine inches thick 620 pages and it's, it weighs in at about 165 pounds. Yeah. And that includes the case that it was ornamented with as well, uh, which is made out of metal. Let's talk about a workout. Um, I mean, 165 is, is like the lower end of the average male weight today. Yeah. The, the average male men, I think, weigh like 160 to 185. Yes, something like that, I think. It supposedly had more than 160 animal skins to make. I'm still not sure how I feel about that, but it is made out of vellum, which is made from animal skins, mostly donkey. Well, you know what I'm wondering is, is if, uh, you know, some of the pages got thrown out because he messed up when writing. (laughs) That'd be an interesting thing, but it's entirely probable. There, there is a legend pertaining to the monk of the book. You want to go into that? Yeah. Yep. So even though people say the author is unknown, the legend says that the name of the author was a monk named Herman the Recluse who lived in what is, was known as Bohemia. Today it would be about the Czech Republic. And I don't think there are any actual accounts that there was a monk named Herman the Recluse, but legend says that for some unknown offense, Herman was sentenced to, to death essentially by being walled up in one in a part of the monastery in order and essentially being made to starve to death. And he begged his abbot to give him clemency and said that if he would allow him to live, he would write a, a book encapsulating all the earthly knowledge and actually write it all in one night. Which is a lot to say to try to save your life, but I guess so supposedly it worked. But as he started to write this book, he realizes there's no way I can write all earthly knowledge in one book in a single night. I need some help. But instead of praying to God and asking God for help, he decides to make a pact with the devil and sold his soul to the devil in order to get this book written in a single night. And in fact, the devil's Bible, right? Mostly, there's also on page 290, there is a goblin-esque vid. <laughs> it looks more like a goblin to me than it does the devil, but medieval devil of some kind. Now, it wasn't uncommon 
to mention the devil or Satan and some capacity in a lot of monastic manuscripts. But it is uncommon to have a depiction of the devil in monastic manuscripts. So this in of itself also makes it a rare find. Not only is it massive, massively huge, but the picture of the devil itself takes up half of an entire page. So it's a f- if it's three feet tall, the, the image itself is a foot and a half tall. It's about two thirds of the page. I pull up in my in my source in the sources, guys. There's a link, and you'll find it. Uh, it has a picture of the the depiction of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing else on this one page. And no. it's just this one creature. It's supposed to be the devil and an ermine skin uh, loincloth, which the loin not the loincloth itself, but the ermine skin part is actually in reference to loyalty because it was sort of something that only loyalty could royalty royalty <laughs> could uh, afford to have because ermine was very expensive. It's sort of yeah. like having owning a mink a mink coat in back of the day. Yeah, I mean, because he is also the devil's also known as the prince of darkness, so it it does refer to that as his royal side, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's weird and interesting all at once but he's really funny looking to me it just looks like a, a goblin he's got a green face he's got a green face he's got like clawed feet and clawed hands it's very weird very talon like mm-hmm. and here's another interesting part is that right next to it on on the page right next to it so when you close the book they're facing each other is the heavenly city basically heaven I think that's fascinating that this author put them right next to each other, basically. So that you're staring at them when you open the book in full. Oh, I don't think it's necessarily coincidental. I think that wasn't intentional. I think so, too. I just think it's fascinating at the same time. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating, especially given all of the different books within the book, essentially, that, Mm -hmm. that were written in there. Now, mind you, this is also done all in Latin and in Everything is by hand. Mm-hmm. And you said you had a list of the various other books within this one giant book. So within this book, there's the complete Latin Bible, which includes the Old Testament, Antiquities of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, the Encyclopedia Etymologiae by Isadora, Isidore of Seville, basically Encyclopedia of Etymology is what it sounds like to me, mm-hmm. uh, Hippocrates and the- Theophilus's Medical Works, and the New Testament. And then also, it also includes the Chronicle of Bohemia by Cosmos of Prague, which is actually the first history of Bohemia. And then smaller texts in the book include exorcism, magic formulas. Yeah, magic formulas in a Bible, guys, in a Bible. And a calendar with a list of saints and Bohemian people, along with the days that they were honored or celebrated. Yeah, in this 162, in this several, what, how many pages? 620 page book. Yes. By the way, 10 pages are missing from this book. Don't know how, don't know why they were removed, but they were supposed, suppose it's believed that it was the rules of St. Benedict that were removed, which were the rules or the guidelines to becoming a monk and how to live, live that kind of life, monastic life during the sixth century. Just, just side note. Absolutely. An unusual text i just find it interesting that that's the one to be removed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's remove the one that describes how you live the life that that this book is supposed to be for 
And then to think, you're writing all of this by hand. Yeah, and drawing it by hand. And, and drawing it by hand. Now, I do have some sources that specifically stated that this was likely to have been done by one person. And some other sources say that it was done by multiple people. Now, research into the drawings and the handwriting says that it's possible it could have been written by more than one person, but there's enough uniformity throughout that majority of it was likely to have been written by one single person, but not in a single night, guys. <laughs> I, I mean, imagine trying to read a 620-page book in one night. Now you're writing and drawing and illustrating a 620-page book in one night. There's no way. <laughs> no way. Maybe a 620 book if you're reading it. But that's why it's, it's said to have been written likely between the years of 1204 and 1230 because it would have likely have taken 20 to 30 years to have written this entire tome. And in fact, it starts off having been written. Now, we don't know, again, we don't know the actual name of the author. As I said, Herman the Recluse is just part of the legend of this book. But we do know that it was originally owned by uh, one monastery and then pawned off to another monastery, which was then rebought back by the original monastery. <laughs> it's just, there's a lot of back and forth. Interesting. You see, you said you had like the Bromov monastery and the Baladichu? The Brevnov? Brevnov. Yeah, I have that in 1295. The Pod Podlazika monastery in Sedlik pawned the codex to Brevnov. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we know this is because of notes that were written in the manuscript actually about it. <laughs> so... I think that's interesting. I guess they kept record pre it's being taken during the Thirty Years' War or actually before that. So it's the back and forth that this book went through. Is, it, it's really interesting because, you know, you look at it because I think you said it originated in Brevnov, right? Then it went to... Yeah. Yeah, I think it started in Brevnov and then went to Polodzika and then went back to, to Brevnov. Brevnov. Because from there it stayed in Brevnov. Because if, you, if it was pawned off, I think in order, because the monk, the monastery was rather poor. So I believe that they probably pawned off this massively, just this massive book, because it was probably a revered tome at the time. Like, we kind of really need some money. Will you buy it from us? And then eventually they were able to make some money back in order to buy it because it went through a variety of different hands because people wanted to own it. Well, yeah, because after that, after it was in, Bre after it was taken back by Brevnov, uh, what with almost three hundred years later, no, yeah, three hundred years later, it was moved to Rudolf II's castle in Prague, where it stayed until the Thirty Years' War. So, just a little heads up on who Rudolf II was: he was the king of Denmark. No, he was the king of Bohemia. Bohemia. Sorry. We're but he was also the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes. And he was the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor from 1576 to 1612. He was hugely unpopular with his people. He was not very well liked. He was from the Habsburg line. Which would explain that chin. <laughs> if if you look up a picture of the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, you'll you'll see the chin. You'll you'll understand what we're talking I, about. I, as soon as I saw that portrait, I'm like, he's got to be part of this Habsburg dynasty because that is that uh -huh. is a Charles the, that is a Charles V chin right there. Yes. 
he he had Mine. quite the chin. <laughs> uh, he just had quite the jaw in general in that sense. But he was highly unpopular, and he was the son of Maximilian II and Maria. But he, I think part of his unpopularity came from the fact that he had severe bouts of depression randomly, just random severe bouts of depression. So not a well-liked guy. Well, it may have also come from his interest in the occult, although at the 1594, early 1600s, it was incredibly popular to be interested in the occult. It, I mean, that goes back for a long ways. But 1594, we're talking early enlightenment. So we're going out of the four humors and into science at this point. But even Queen Elizabeth I, who was incredibly influential. I mean, the Golden Age is attributed to her. So highly influential, highly enlightenment highly scientific but at the same time she was also very much into the occult too so i think it was mm-hmm. a thing that is just i mean john d was a renaissance man for mm-hmm. most uh, most part really and he uh, say we tried to converse with angels see our previous episode and john d is actually kind of interesting and king rudolph ii was no different in fact he had a massive interest in the occult yeah he would collect a variety of living animals dead animals he had various paintings sculptures and just i collect weird stuff but there's a difference between collecting weird stuff and like dead animals live animals and just being like this is all part of my collection just sounds way creepier from him than it does from you i guess in my brain (laughs) (laughs) but you don't collect dead animals do you Uh, i i have some animal bones and a couple of dead beetles but I'm also not a taxidermist, so I don't really go out looking for kind of things like that. Although I think taxidermy is still interesting. But I don't go out thinking that I can use it necessarily to create the Philosopher's Stone, which I oh, think yeah. was more so what he was doing. It wasn't necessarily so much as using it necessarily just for decoration because mm. you, know, you, you, you kill a deer, you mount its head on your wall. That is odd to some people, but at the same time, it's a trophy to others. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, at this time, Rudolf II was interested in actually creating the Philosopher's Stone. So he actually would have a lot of experiments going on. He would put a lot of, I don't know if it's his own wealth or the kingdom's wealth, but he spent a lot of money trying to have various alchemists throughout Europe create the Sorcerer's Stone and order because it, as I said, it's supposed to give eternal life to whoever possessed it, which of course is also, we know is something that doesn't actually exist. It's sort of like to me, the fountain of youth. Although maybe people in Florida might uh, disagree with me on that one. I don't know, <laughs> but he was so much into the occult. There's a, a section of his palace known as Alchemist Alley, which is actually a rather popular tourist destination. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Didn't either. I do know. That's fascinating. Who would have thought? It doesn't surprise me at the same time. True. It, it, I, I, mean, I never know how to feel. I'm just like, am I surprised or am I just fascinated? Both. Probably. But back to Gaiga. <laughs> <laughs> after, after it was taken to Rudolph's the second's castle in Prague. It stayed there until the Thirty Years' War, where in 1648 it was removed by the Swedish army. It was then taken to Trey Kroner, 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 
whichever one, which is the castle in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. And just to give you a little bit about the Thirty Years' War, so you know what we're talking about, it occurred from 1618 to 1648, took about 8 million lives, and it was originally a battle between Catholics and Protestants. And as the war continued on, it later went from a religious-based battle or war into who would rule over Europe. (laughs) Basically, power. So that's just a little... Little tidbit background there. But Trey Cronor, the castle, by the way, after the Geiger Codex was taken there, the castle in Stockholm was a wooden structure. I'm not exactly sure why you would have a wooden structure as a castle when, you know, you're going to be building fire. <laughs> a lot of structures back in the early days were made out of wood. Yeah, or, or early English palaces, or early English uh, uh, castles, no, forts, and early castles were made out of wood before they were made out of stone. Yeah, way before 1697, though. True. By the 1600s, even before that, wasn't it? By like the 14, by the by the by the Tudor time, at least the castles were palaces, and the Tudors were in power in the 1400s. True. So, uh, but that was in England. This is in Stockholm. I know. I would still think that by this time you would have at least shared the technology or technology would have been discovered as to how to build a castle out of stone. That would be my thought, but I could be wrong. However, the castle was was made of wood in the 1690s and, well, fire went raging through the palace. And in order to save the Geiger Codex, it was thrown out a window. <laughs> and <laughs> Well, sort of. Sort of. So according to one of my sources, according to the account of Johann Eriksson, uh, who is a vicar of the German church in Stockholm, mm-hmm. in his account, it was specifically said that the codex was tossed out of a window and is said to have landed on a person standing below, which injured him greatly. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering Ooh. if anyone just was like, look up below. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Now I don't even. I don't think anyone just went look out below. I think they were just like throw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 165 pounds landing on you from who knows how high up. <laughs> That's a lot of weight. That's gotta hurt. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, obviously, so the book was slightly damaged. It is thought that some of the missing pages may have possibly fallen out at this point. It wasn't severely damaged, obviously, but it was damaged enough that it had to have a rebinding. Yeah. And the rebinding actually didn't occur until 1819. Which is a while afterwards. Yeah. I wonder what really happened, but who knows? We, we don't have any record of it that I know of. But after that, it went into the National Library of Sweden. In 1878. Thank you. Yes. So I actually read an account and there was an artist's depiction of it, which I can imagine this being something of interest to have been there for. So the National Library was sort of a big thing when it opened up and a sort of pomp and circumstance kind of a thing. And it said that the last piece to have actually been established within the library was the codex. And because it is so heavy, it was drawn instead of carried in like one might normally, because it's so heavy, it was drawn in by horse and carriage up to the library and then placed inside. Well, I'm not surprised. It's 165 pounds. 
I wouldn't want to carry it. Who wants to carry that? <laughs> but to this day, it still resides in the National Library. It's actually housed in a vault-like room, which I'm pretty certain is likely to be temperature-controlled, probably light-controlled, because it is 800 years old and incredibly... It, it's not only rare, but it's also the only one of its kind in existence, so an incredibly rare. And it's also housed within bulletproof glass as well. And it is said that the the book itself is insured for eight million pounds. Oh, wow. Eight million pounds. So there's likely to be a lot of security around this book. Oh, yeah. I don't doubt that. I mean, it's rare and it's an important part of history. By the way, eight million pounds is... $10,604,800. Mm-hmm. That, that's a lot of money. I'm a little surprised that something that's called the Devil's Bible was not destroyed. Now that I'm thinking about it. Well, I want question. When did the, de- the name the Devil's Bible become attributed to the Geiger Codex? Was it during that period or was it after? It would, have been, it would have been probably sometime prior to Rudolph II. Which, by the way, he didn't buy the book. He, it said that he stole the book. Well, no, actually. Well, it's sort of. So he told the Plevna Monastery that it's like, oh, I'd like to borrow this. And they were kind of like, well, okay, but we want it back. And he goes, okay, and I promise to give it back. Never did. <laughs> Shocking. And then technically, you know, with the Thirty Years' War, it was... It is also believed to have been stolen by the Swedes as well because it still resides in Sweden. So that's a whole different thing there, too. <laughs> but I, it definitely would have because if it had already a reputation for being called the Devil's Bible, because most of it, the stuff that's in it isn't really occult stuff. It's just biblical stuff for the most part and, and historical knowledge. It's not magical knowledge. So I would think it probably had its reputation prior to Rudolph II because for somebody who is interested in the occult, that seems like something he would probably would want to have in his, I guess, cabinet of curiosities of some kind, just for its reputation alone. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, cabinets of curiosities were the first versions of museums. Mm-hmm. That's all I had. Yeah, that's pretty much it. As you said, we'll have a link. I found a PDF so that you can actually view the scanned copy. Uh, well, a pictured copy is not really scanned because it's too big for the scanner. <laughs> 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 and also really, really heavy. For the scanner uh but definitely a, a pictured page by page pdf that we will have on our links for sure if anyone wants to take a look at it uh and we will definitely have links to the five different pictures at most of the book by the way is really just text there's the the opening letters to some of the areas that you have there's 70s like in a lot of medieval manuscripts you have this ornate beginning o's or t's or s's and there's 77 of those but there's out of this entire 620 page book there's only five actual illustrations two of which are the heavenly city and the devil and the other ones are just marginal pictures very more elaborate stuff yeah so there's it's pretty much a 620 page textbook yep well 618 610 okay whatever you say <laughs> my my you know if it's 620 minus the 10 pages that are missing Six, minus the 10 pages that are missing plus two pages that are actual just illustrations so but the whole book itself but the is whole 600, book 610 610. that we know of today 
I would, I believe. So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but we'll have all sources, links to videos and pictures and all that stuff will be on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Oh, just real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think you'll like this. So you mentioned that the etymology by Isidore is actually written in this book. Mm-hmm. That particular text was actually written in the seventh century and it was an attempt to record all universal knowledge that Isidore had at his fingertips essentially at the time. And he's been since called Saint Isidore. It's more of the saint of knowledge. And did you know that he is referred to or believed to be the patron saint of the internet? (laughs) Because really universal knowledge and the internet. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) So weird. But all sources will be linked on our Facebook page, which is history. Sorry, I'm stuck on the patron saint of the internet. <laughs> which is You're welcome. Stop it. Which is history explains it all on Facebook. Please uh, contact us. You can contact us through our Facebook page. You can contact us through our email, which is history explains all at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram, which is history explains it all underscore podcast. I post there three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And I have just started, or well, by the time this comes out, it'll be about a month. Every other week will be a on this day in history kind of bit where I post about what happened on this day in history that has been started already. And so we hope you you come join us and and. Give us feedback and tell us what you think or give us ideas. What do you think? What do we want to hear from you? Absolutely. And if you happen to be listening to us on a platform that allows for reviews or ratings, please leave us some. Please, please let us know what you think. Any, any suggestions, any helpful criticisms or anything like that. Anything you want to hear from us. As I say at the end of every episode, without anyone listening, we're just two people here in a room. So now in two separate rooms Please. because I don't live in LA anymore. <laughs> I'm only two hours away, but we want to hear from you guys. We want to know your ideas. We want to hear what you've learned or or anything like that. So please feel free to contact us. And mm-hmm. just a reminder, we will be having a Christmas special. Woohoo! Christmas <laughs> special. Yep, I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> But we hope you join us for that. It will come out like our regular episode. So it will be on Christmas Eve day, the 24th. So, Which is actually going to be a Tuesday. So Christmas Christmas is actually a... Oh, sorry. I'm looking at November. I was like, what are you Give talking about? Second. It's a yeah, Thursday. It's a, it's a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. She's looking at the wrong calendar, y'all. Yeah. No. The 24th is like our regular episode day of a Thursday, hence why it's going to come out like a regular episode on like our Halloween special, which came out over that Halloween weekend. So we it, it will be posted on the 24th and uh, we hope y'all enjoy it and join us. So. Absolutely. And we'll talk to you later. See you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.